This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In the first of a three-part series, I sit down with Salman Said to talk about Islamism as philosophy. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another episode of In Conversation. Today we have with us Professor Salman Said to talk about Islamism. So, uh, Professor Said, I want to start our conversation off with tapping into a bit of a debate that has been brewing both <coughs> amongst academic circles, both on and off social media. Um, so I just want to ask, there are those who believe we shouldn't use the term Islamism as it belies a secularization of our understanding of the Islamic hate. What do you think of this critique? Uh, thank you. Um, I think I would start off by saying that the question about what term to use really depends on what purpose you want to use that term for. I don't think there's any um, criterion by which you can say one term is useful for all intents and purposes. Now, in my work and the work of others, I've seen Islam Islamism used um, for a particular purpose. And part distinguish between the way in which around about the beginning of the 20th century, a series of intellectual, political, cultural transformations took place in the uh, Islamosphere, in which Islam became articulated to a project of political transformation in the context of a European-centered world in which the very idea of politics and the political were occupied by uh, Western categories and cultural templates and algorithms. So mm. that's the context in that. Now, there are, of course, many colleagues um, and you know many people would say, well, Islam has all doesn't make the distinction between politics and religion, and this is a Christian uh, religion. And I think there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think they're in many ways, they're correct. But that's not the way, that's not uh, the reason for using Islamism or not using Islamism. There are those who make the other argument that Islamism is a category of uh, Orientalist category, um, which is being used by, um, you know, the war on terror um, and various other Islamophobic interventions. Um, and I think, again, I, I'm sympathetic to that view, except if we push down to it, it's the, the, the nature of Orientalism and Orientalist categories is actually a lot deeper. So I don't think, um, you know, one could argue that uh, even, you know, the question of religion, even religion is an Orientalist category, etc. Mm. So I, I think one has to be careful about... Um, using the notion of uh, Orientalist category to rule out of order the use of a particular term without 
making the case for why it may be helpful or useful for that. So it's not to invalidate those concerns, but to question the strength of those arguments. So for me, Islamism is a useful term to allow us to talk about a specific context, a specific conjuncture in which the Muslim Ummah finds itself following more or less the dismantling of the caliphate and the attachment of the um, signifier of Islam with the assemblages of the state. Now that disattachment, that gap, opens mm. up the space for the rearticulation of Islam and politics and Islam and the political and the contestation of that articulation, which I think is basically what structures most of the kind of unrest and conflict and disagreements that we see in the Muslim Ummah and um, in the world today around the question of Muslims and Islam. Okay. Um, I think we've... um skirted around my next question and you did kind of address it but i want to tease something out a bit uh further and like get obviously more more of your thoughts on this um so if islamism is not to be seen as something which is a secularizing force then what exactly is islamism i think Islamism is really the process uh, arising out of a recognition of the disarticulation of Islam from historical development, from uh, its disarticulation from uh, political uh, assemblages, and a recognition of the idea that for Muslims to exist in the world as Muslims requires a shaping of uh, structures of power, authority, as well as being able to insulate and protect Muslimness from challenges to their very being. So I think, in a way, what I would say, you know, shorthand way of saying it, and the way that I write and describe about it, that. Um, Islam, you know, Islamicist is someone who thinks that their uh, vision of a political and social order is focused on the signifier of Islam, is centered Mm. on the signifier of Islam. Now that then carries on, well, what does that mean in practice? And that's where I think the debates around it begin. That's where the disagreements and the contestations begin. But if you assume that Islam has a role to play in shaping um, society, has a role to play in shaping the distribution and allocation of values and resources, then I think there is a sense in which you are an Islamicist. Mm. Okay. Um, I want to kind of, um, again, delve a bit deeper into this and kind of um, tease out something which you've said uh, to me personally in the past and something which you are working on at the moment is 
you want to introduce this uh, view of viewing um, way of viewing Islamism as philosophy. Could you speak a bit on that and what what that means and what work that does? Okay, so I mean, what you're referring to is obviously um, my book um, titled Islamism mm. as Philosophy. And in that book, there is a series of arguments around the relationship between Islamism um, and philosophy, but not it's not a book which is a philosophy of Islamism. So mm. it's not a book in which you see, um, you know, the kind of ideas and ideals um, which, you know, you may uh, find in Islamicist writers. It's not a book which is organized around um sort of, you know, key thinkers of yeah. Islamism. I mean, there are many, many good books and there are many, many, and many more bad books which do that, but it's not that. So, nor is it a kind of a book which is really about the um, themes um, which are the main kind of uh, elements that would constitute a philosophical framework from Islamism. That's not what the book is, does. Mm. So, in a way, the book is 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 neither of those things. Nor is a book really about a demonstration that we should think about Islamism as a, a set of ideas and ideals distinct from. Um, uh, you know, distinct from other kinds of ideals uh, and ideologies, etc. So, what I've told you so far is what the book is not about, um, and what I perhaps should tell you <laughs> uh, is what the book—not necessarily what the book is about, at least what the argument is about. Mm. And for me, the articulation or juxtapositioning of Islamism and philosophy is a provocation. Uh, for decolonial thinking. Mm. Uh, and let me make that clear, or maybe it is already clear. Maybe I don't need to make that any clearer. Mm. I think make it clearer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I guess, okay, so here's the thing. Part of the decolonial project has become this attempt to locate pre-colonial and therefore pre-modern formations of knowledge and organizations of being um, throughout the world. And an element in that is, is, is this element of recovery mm. of those silenced and eroded by that. Now, the challenge for any kind of decoloniality or a decolonization of the Islamicate is twofold. One is simply a genealogical one, which is that most of the work done so far on um, decolonial thinking and decolonial thought has basically been focused on the Atlantic, in particular the relationship between the um, 
formation and the conquest of what became the Americas and the formations of uh, formation of indigeneity, and of course the uh, formation of Africanity in relation to that Atlantic um, interventions. So that it seems to me drives the heart of much of decolonial thinking. Mm. What that does is leave us with the possibility of the expansion of the category of decoloniality along the vector of, I think, as Walter Minola puts it, um, this kind of expansion of the category of the uh, wretched of the earth, you know, taking that um, uh, title from obviously from Fanon. But Mm. the idea is this, that we are just locating different kinds of wretchedness, different kind of dispossessed and we can then simply work out a decolonial logic. And in fact, much of the energy and the expansion of this kind of explosion of decoloniality is doing precisely that, um, locating the subjugated in any kind of instance. Now, this creates a number of challenges which are to do with the relationship between um, well, the relationship between formations um, organized under the sign of, let's say, uh, Islam or the Sinocentric world or the Sanskrit world, in which you start contesting that relationship between um, the impact of the European colonial enterprise and other formations of uh, of power which have existed. Mm. So that's the first challenge. I think linked to that challenge is really the issue about what constitutes subjugation uh, and where do we go to look for the processes of subjugation. Now, the short answer and the very common answer is that, well, colonialism is the main uh, perpetrator of subjugation, which is which is true, um, you know, European colonialism. Mm. But as we also expand the category of the dispossessed or the wretched, there's also an attempt to expand the category of the subjugators and the category of the imperial formations. And you can see this very, very clearly in the literature being produced, um, not always by... Um, white revanchists, uh, but often uh, by authors who are beloved of white revanchists, is which is to argue that, well, of course, yes, the Europeans had the so-called Atlantic uh, slavery complex, but the Muslims had the Saharan uh, slavery complex. Yes, of course, the European empires carried out a great deal of violence, but the Islamic empires carried out even more violence. And you see these kinds of comparisons um, circulating, for example, in large number of the kind of, uh, you know, this kind of, um, what I would call white revanchist literature, but you can see, mm. and others may want to say, differentiate and say, well, you can see this in Hinduvata circles, you can see this in um, many, many Islamophobic uh, mm. literatures and um, and being produced around the idea of the Muslim imperialism. So 
the question that is also for me in this book is what produces um, subjugation? But the provocation comes with this. How many people who call themselves decolonial would certainly find themselves challenged by the notion that there may be anything decolonial about Islamism or that there may be a way of thinking of Islamism not as a political ideology, not as an algorithm for producing violence, um, not as a code word for extremism and fundamentalism and dogmatism and everything that good, good, good liberals do not like, Mm. But perhaps as an alternative history uh, in the making. Mm. In other words, the idea of bringing Islamism and philosophy together um, in, in, in some sort of dialogue is to see what happens if we do that to both the notion of philosophy and to the notion of Islamism. But more importantly, mm. I guess for my purposes, that is this something that makes uh, decolonial thinking and others progressive thought uh, queasy? And can we understand that queasiness? Mm. Okay, that was a really interesting response. Um, okay, so... You sound surprised. I'm not, I'm not, I'm never surprised by your interestingness, trust me. <laughs> um, but I want to um, kind of mind that a bit from a couple of directions, actually, but we'll start with just the one. So you mentioned this idea of subjugation, okay? Mm. And how basically uh, what decal, as if I've understood you correctly, um, what decoloniality largely is these days is basically just finding which people is subjugated and trying to then basically reverse engineer who is doing the subjugation. And I think this very much links us to um, what you call Kamalism mm -hmm. in um, Recalling the Caliphate and elsewhere as well in Fundamental Fear. Um so I wanted to kind of mind that relationship as well. So if Islamism has this relationship with philosophy, where it kind of creates this alternative history and basically makes of itself an alternative, so to speak, um, then what is Kamalism's relationship to philosophy? Do you see this operating in the same way, yeah, but like Kamal a mirror image? I mean, look, the, the point I'm trying to make here is this. This is a, this is a um, one of the things that I'm, you know, you can't draw these kind of symmetrical um, argument in a way. The mm. reason why I think Kamalism doesn't need, it doesn't interest me in that relation as a, a philosophy or as a philosophical proposition is not because it doesn't have one or could not have one. It's that basically Kamalism, what is the project of Kamalism? Um, regardless of whatever people may say about it, what Kamalism is basically an, a, an understanding of modernity as a fundamentally deeply westernizing project. Now, that question about what what westernizing means and people will point out that you know mustafa kamal himself fought off the british imperialists etc etc and and you know they're mixing up these kind of geopolitical rivalries with kind of intellectual rivalries with cultural rivalries etc and, and and i don't want to get into that but i think for me 
um, Kamalism is is less interesting for this proposition because mm. what is the basic thesis of Kamalism? That um, Islam and Muslims should confine themselves to the private sphere, if at all. Um, modern societies have one unified template, which is a variation of what is um, pioneered in the global north, in particular in Western Europe or the United States, um, you know, or if you want, Canada. Um, and you can tell what a good society is or a successful society is to the extent that it approximates the um, this European uh, template. Now, the, as many people point out, this is a template which is... Um, a highly romanticized version of what mm. the West, uh, you know, Western societies are, uh, which often takes away or completely obscures the impacts of racism or ableism or sexism or all the other kinds of violences are simply squeezed out of that record of that. But that's what the what Kamalism is. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's more um, more interesting than that to me. Um, mm. I mean, you know, and most Kabbalists that I've ever met are not that, they have, don't have much more to say on this. They act, I mean, they're basically, they think they're universalists. They often mm. think that their wealth and their privileges um, and their positionalities or their education insulates them and allows them to pass, you know, and and that's a certain way. That's one of their investments, and they will. And you can see them in relation to many, many recent uh, events and things that you know. And um, they end up replicating the same view, uh, which is reproduced hegemonically in the West. Um, and, and 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 I think one of the biggest fears, then, oh, the fears, one of the concerns I have, to what extent, um, let's call that a global liberal sentiment uh, for mm. a variety of reasons. Um, ultimately. Has that transformed human subjectivities to such a degree that all we can think of, all we can dream of, is confined in those parameters? So our very construction of our desires and our hopes for the future cannot go beyond that. And, and, and ultimately, we replicate not just liberalism as a, and its promise, but also um, liberalism and its limits and its, its its challenges. And therefore, for decoloniality, does it offer something which is goes beyond liberalism or is decoloniality, and particularly its expansion in so many different theatres, simply a kind of a, a surreptitious smuggling in of liberal sensibilities and liberalism's provocabilities and it's, it's, it's kind of um, shaping of the world. Mm. Uh, and the challenges that it poses for the rest of humanity. So I think, you know, that's for me um, why, you know, whether Kamalism is a philosophy or not, it doesn't have the same provocative effect to it. Mm. Because ultimately the issue is this, um, you know, most people... Um, you talk to in commentaries and things like that, often we'll start off with say something like this, that um, take Turkey as an example. Erdogan is a dictator who is undoing the um, secularism and um, of Turkey. Mm -hmm. Full stop. 
rarely do those people say uh, Mustafa Kemal was a dictator who undid the Muslimness of Turkey. Um, that the secularism that they see in the Republic was actually imposed by a tyrannical regime. Um, the violence that the regime carried out in imposing that and the distortions that it introduced uh, into Turkish society. And again, those distortions, some of them you may say were good and some of them were not necessary. But, you know, um, mm. so the point that I would make to you is this, that, um, you know, uh, Kemalism is very easily recuperated um, within that. And But to argue, for example, that, oh, Islamism is progressive in any shape, way or form, or Islamism... Mm about results which may be of benefit to those societies, including, for example, those who are minorities, including those who are uh, women, or those who are, you know, um, excluded. Now, that doesn't mean that it does, but the argument is, could you make the argument, and could that argument uh, be made in a way that was not unthinkable? Uh, I think it's very, very interesting that you see a similar kind of uh, enactment going on around Kabul airport, mm. which becomes the index of what Afghanistan is. Uh, what is lost in, you know, that the, um, what did the occupation for 20 years do for rural Afghanistan? What did it do for the, um, you know, dealing with questions of misogyny or racism or sexism, which in fact, you know, are evidenced in the occupation itself. But the idea that you read it, that basically that um, democracy came, you know, at the barrel of a gun and it is still a democracy. It's it, it, These are the kind of almost un, un, unquestioned commentary that ranges on that that, um, you know, no one asked the question, if the Taliban are so terrible, and, you know, there are many reasons you could argue that they are terrible, then how is it that over 20 years, $2 trillion later, they've still been able to maintain some kind of semblance of support, which allows them to, um, if nothing else, maintain a military establishment which has been able to overthrow uh, the US-led occupation forces within a week. Mm. That, that, you know, how do you explain that? If you are saying that all of these, um, there is no, they have nothing to offer these societies, that they are, so who are these people who are supporting them? And of course, the, you know, the official Afghanistan, the government's, previous government's answer was that, oh, this is all being done by Pakistani intelligence, or this is being done by... Uh, drugs, money, etc., etc. And all of these answers are really, really ridiculous because they don't take into account the scale of resources available on the side of the occupation through the United States compared to the resources available to the Taliban in any kind of horizon or any mm. kind of accounting exercises. So, but to argue um, that the Taliban represent something in uh, Afghani society um, mm. is very, very challenging. It's very, very difficult. Um, and to see that 
And again, of course, you know, people who are serious academics rather than journalists often will make that point. But very few of them will be heard in that kind of public discourse around Afghanistan, which all becomes around the airport. People haven't asked that, in fact, compared to the looting that was unleashed when the Americans took over Baghdad, there seems to be at this stage very little looting or the comparisons between what do occupation forces do when they take over territory? Um, who do they um, who do they deal with? Who do they um, look for? What are the threats that they face? Is there a kind of an anthropology of occupation that one could call upon? Are, and are the um, Taliban acting differently or uh, than other occupation armies in this? If they are not, mm -hmm. why not? If they are, why, um, you know, explain that. So that all gets lost in this notion of the idea that anything to do with Islam, Islamicate, must be somehow retrograde mm -hmm. um, and something that is threatening um, society and individuals and their future. Um, and you can do this nicely and say, well, yes, you know, we can make a distinction between good Muslims and bad Muslims, you know, um, single Muslims and double Muslims, Muslims who take themselves, mm -hmm. uh, take their Muslimness seriously and those who don't. Or we can do it carte blanche and say, you know, like the um, uh, Chinese authorities in, in, in East Turkestan or the um, Hinduvata or you know, sections of the white revanchist um, echo box or, you know, being represented by governments in France and Austria that, you know, uh, but the challenge remains is, is it possible to imagine a different ordering of the world in mm. which um, Islam plays a organizing or a, plays a role of a horizon? That's what seems to me one way of understanding is Islamism is something that puts Islam as a horizon for uh, political and social organization. Now, it could be that you could say, no, it's not. But perhaps that needs to be demonstrated. And perhaps what this book is trying to do is wrestle with those questions that, uh, and, and then the sense of queasiness. What would it mean if you could think that there could be an alternative history? of the Islamicate, or there could be an alternative history of the world in which the Islamicate um, is significant to that development of that history. Okay. Um, okay. I just want to just... question this idea of, well, not question, but kind of mind this idea of queasiness, uh, especially. Um, is it as easy as simply saying that this queasiness in these people who obviously you're referring to is it as easy as saying that it simply comes from liberalism or is there something else here uh, that kind of influences this queasiness? Why are people queasy about an alternative history, so to speak? I think it's a really good question. I mean, uh, look, some of it is a certain kind of exaggerated um, notion. Some of it is genuine and fears for personal safety and concern. Some of it's based on the record of violence, um, which has, you know, been associated with uh, various iterations of Islamist groups, or some of them, is, or those who are described as Islamist groups. This is also, you know, a whole kind of contestation. So there are 
a number of very valid reasons that you could say that people are, you know, uh, are queasy about uncertainty. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, one has to take those into account. But let me try and understand this, and maybe someone can explain this to me. We saw, you know, this is the um, 10th anniversary of the um, so-called Arab Spring. Mm. And in nearly every single case, uh, what we've seen since the hopes of the Arab Spring is a kind of a um, re- counter-revolution, some would call it, the restoration of authoritarian dictatorial rule. Um, and in most cases, those who have supported the restoration of authoritarian rule, um, let's say, for example, in Egypt, who were the, some of the uh, you know prominent critics of E. M. Morrissey? The uh, you know the, I think probably the only democratically elected president of Egypt uh, mm-hmm. in modern times. Um, who were one of his biggest critics? They were part of the kind of, um, you know, some would have uh, previous analysis would call them comprador elites, but they certainly had liberal tastes and affections, saw themselves as cosmopolitans, um, saw themselves part of a kind of global liberal dispensation, and thought that the Muslim Brotherhood was the most um, vile, authoritarian, uh, you know, movement which would destroy mm. and all their freedoms and uh, was incredibly violent and retrograde and they cheered or they certainly encouraged al-sisi now by any um measure uh statistical uh, uh, al-sisi regime is probably one of the most violent regimes in egyptian history since uh, since the british colonial rule mm. uh, it doesn't compare in scale to the violence during the muslim brotherhood now you could say well this is incidental or not, but the argument makes that they were enablers or enabled by many who would describe themselves as liberal. And that's not a one-off case. I mean, in, in, in throughout, I mean, one of the challenges for um, the Muslim Ummah is that there is a large section of the population which often describes itself, and it's just, and, and quite rightly, that, you know, they're interested in human rights, they're interested in, in individual rights, uh, you know, all very important and valid kind of concerns. But my question is that why do they so often find themselves uh, defending dictatorships when those dictatorships opposing what they deem to be uh, Islamist, pop-inspired, uh, popular? Um, uprisings or a bid for power. And, you know, you can look at Algeria, you can look at Egypt, you can look at many, many places this has happened, you know. Mm. This is the question. So, you know, if they are liberals, then why is it that they end up supporting uh, illiberal regimes um, when it comes to the question of uh, um, Islam and Muslimness. Mm, an interesting question. Interesting question. <laughs> I mentioned quite a bit ago that I had two things I wanted to go into, and we've gone down one rabbit hole, but I want to kind of go down another one. Um, you've mentioned. I don't think we've gone down any rabbit hole. Surely we're exploring paths and um, 
I'm fond of Alice in Wonderland. It's always uh, <laughs> it's always been a favourite. Um, but so we've, I think we've mentioned two things. I would say that form kind of what I would call kind of uh, discursive nodes of the view of Islamism or the relationship between Islamism and philosophy that you wish to put forward. So one being the alternative history and the other being Islam as the horizon. I want to know, are there any other main contours of this relationship which you haven't yet mentioned? And obviously, what are they? I guess, I mean, I suppose the way to answer this would be what would happen to philosophy if we thought of it as being something um, that Islamism was, that Islamism could be a philosophy. What would Islamism need to do to change and what would philosophy need to do to change to accommodate that? So I guess, you know, it's it's playing out those. And I don't think there's a, mm-hmm. you know, a set number of um, things that I could say to you yeah. that actually five things that would follow. Then, you know, there may be five, there may be uh, none and there may be more than five and I guess that what the book's trying to do is, is really um, play on those possibilities um, mm. and see how far they can go and also by asking these series of uh, questions or putting them in juxtaposition with each other to generate material for um, enriching our imagination so that we can expand the you know the diet of examples by which we understand ourselves and the world and our place in it in the present and the future and I suppose in the past as well. So I guess that's part of a bigger project and a project that I would link mm. up to you know um, the critical Muslim studies project. But in terms of specifically, I think you know I think ultimately I suppose there's a relationship here between. What? Where does Islamism sit in the constellation of a body of ideas? Now, very commonly, it is put very, very um, unproblematically in categories such as like um, what well, used to be sort of fundamentalism as a category, mm. um, be a category in relation to um, you know right wing, um, right wing ideologies, um, and I think it's interesting. Um, whether it fits so easily in that split between the left and the right, which is bequeathed to the world from the French Revolution, I mean, like I said, you know, I've said this before that I think the um, the the, the uh, Iranian Revolution has disrupted the left and the right, not only just for um, you know uh, politics of Muslimness, but also for global politics, because in relation to uh, the question of the Muslim question, it's not that straightforward to work out what is left and what is right uh, as mm. you have islamophobia on the wrong you know in the ranks of the leftists as well as islamophobia where you would expect it to be among the right um so it is it is it, it complicates that picture no end um yeah. yeah and i think it's um just something that's come to my mind actually um because there was a recent uh, well not recent the election of the new i think president of Iran and if you looked at how that was described 
in Western media, it was very much, this is a hardliner and these are the moderates. But if you look at the definition of moderate and hardliner, it's what their relationship to the West is, which then links into this idea that the Iranian revolution has kind of disrupted the left and right. And then all that's left is this bare-faced kind of, well, how do they relate to us sort of thing, rather than them on their own terms. No, I think that's actually a very, very important point, Hazar, and I think it's something that you know um, people see very, very easily. That um, what is moderate, what is successful, is really not when these so-called sovereign regimes are acting in their interest, but when they're acting in Western interests, which yeah. often is not a hallmark of sovereignty. I mean, you know, what makes the Ghani uh, government in Kabul a good government? Because it follows, uh, you know, fights for American interests. What makes a government a bad government if it doesn't follow American interests? I mean, this is a slightly, um, you know, when you put it like this, it sounds banal and foolish. But mm. I would say to you that, you know, it is deeply, deeply embedded in, in kind of in, in public opinion, and and it's very difficult for people to articulate that actually the interests of a Afghani woman living in Helmand or um, you know uh, on a f- may be very very different than the interests of a uh, U.S. Uh, academic studying Afghanistan um, to support the military occupation. Mm. They don't have to be compatible. It's unlikely that they are compatible, but that doesn't mean that the Afghani interests are defective of that. Mm. Okay, I think for the first part, we'll leave it there. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Saeed, and hopefully we will um, have more for you on this topic soon. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating. 